You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Football season is here, and it's time to bet with my bookie. Use promo code Gators and double your first deposit. Your winning season begins today. Only at my bookie. Gators breakdown. Because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. The Gators Breakdown podcast is ready to go. I'm your host, David Waters, and you can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Joining me for this episode is co-host Will Miles. Will, uh, right before this episode, uh, you said uh, you've been on the uh, on the ball field, softball fields, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, uh, the kids' teams are still winning. Yeah, well, we got the playoffs going on right now. They're they're letting they've let us out of the house long enough to be able to play out there up here up here in Pennsylvania. So um, it's it's been a fun time. It's been good to see the kids back together. And Clark, one of the, you know, Clark had mentioned off air that uh, it was good to see people going outside of the house. That's certainly true. And uh, you know, yeah, it's a good time. But obviously, it's also the weather's starting to change up here too. Where the daylight's going away quicker, and it's starting to get a little bit cooler. And Man, that really signals for what time of year it is, and obviously things have been moved back a little bit, but uh, getting excited for an all-SEC schedule this year. Absolutely, absolutely. As Will mentioned, we have a special guest tonight, Clark Brooks from SEC StatCat. Will, we've been kind of kind of waiting on this one. We have mentioned plenty of times and, and given him plenty of kudos for a lot of uh, us going to the site and, and checking out all the metrics and analytics and stuff. So, uh, Clark, man, welcome to Gators Breakdown. Hopefully uh, we'll get you on again in the, in the future, but uh, plenty, plenty to discuss with the uh, SEC 2020 season coming up. And thankfully, we have some football to talk about. Thank gosh, yes. I mean, of all the off-seasons where you just want something to happen, obviously we have to wait an extra month, but I, I certainly hope the wait will definitely be worth it. And I'm very excited to finally talk some, uh, some real tangible football. This isn't just like talk over the off-season to get us through. We have real live games. This past weekend, of course, the real good stuff is just a few short weeks away. Absolutely. So, uh, Clark, let all of our listeners know out there, like I said, Will and I have given plenty of kudos to SEC StatCat, and hopefully we've sent a lot of people uh, your way. But uh, why did you start the site? Uh, what's the site about? And, uh, you know, and, and everything that uh, Gators Breakdown listeners can get on the site. Well, I worked in local news, local TV news for, for a while, but I just didn't think that the nitty-gritty football analytics was really that type of medium to really sell it. And, of course, with the boom with engagement really focused towards gambling and gamblers are always looking for that inside edge on where they would like to place their money. I ventured more into what plays, what concepts people were actually running. It, you know, just saying a team runs the ball a lot or throws the ball a lot doesn't necessarily, um, you know, indicate what type of offense they are. Of course, LSU this past season, they went from the stone ages going from eye formation, tight formations to empty spread set and, and really revolutionizing the SEC with the run and shoot. So um, it really, you really can't tell that by just looking at the box score. That said, you know, you go to ESPN.com, there's not a whole lot of transparency 
for things beyond basic stats like yards per catch or completion percentage, I want to provide a little bit more value like depth adjusted accuracy percentage, you know, actually giving um, more weight the further the ball travels downfield and whether it's caught or not, the quarterback gets judged adequately. And, you know, it's just putting a little more context on how efficient some people can be or inefficient some people can be in the context of how they're actually being asked to operate. So um, I just thought this was like two years ago is when I launched it this past fall was the first time I was kind of public about it. You know, I didn't really want to take it to market to make sure that, you know, our uh, filters weren't necessarily working or our data was not necessarily being tracked appropriately. So I'm very excited for this fall. And, of course, with an all-SEC schedule, it definitely has my attention 100%. So I, I got to ask, because a lot of people will they'll, they'll, they'll wonder as well, how do you balance, and we get this question a lot, how do you balance all the metrics, all the numbers, and how much it weighs compared to what you just see with the eye test? Sure. I mean, yeah, that's the big, that's always going to be the conundrum with uh, statistics versus film. Of course, with college, when you have sub, so much more smaller sample size, you have so much more volatility year in and year out just because you have that year over year churn of uh, talent. And it's a lot more scheme driven as opposed to team builder building like you are in the NFL. So um, I'd like to say it's about 70 30. Um, you know, statistics can tell the story somewhat, but of course, you have someone um, like we're probably going to talk about a little bit later in, you know, John Reese Plumley, where you see the highlight plays, tangible electricity with his legs. But again, if you look at his passing statistics, He's damn real near the worst passer in the conference, and it's hardly even close to turn, uh, looking at the main returners. So um, while the eye test can definitely tell you a whole lot, it can absolutely lead yourself to lie yourself a little bit more if you don't necessarily look at, oh, by a per-play basis, this is actually not efficient way to play whatsoever, even if it is a top play in sports center every Saturday night. Gotcha, gotcha there. So I know... If you go to readreaction.com, we'll cite there. You'll see plenty of references to uh, SEC StatCat. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I, I was telling, telling you off air that your site has saved me a ton of time. Um, I'm curious, how long does it take you to chart this stuff out? I mean, it, it's, a, it's a significant undertaking to, to chart all this stuff out. And I'm sure get it in the site. And obviously, you've got database systems now to take care of it. But still, at the same time, to be able to break down, break down stuff into interception percentage, but then interceptable percentage, to be able to break it down into third and 10 plus to be able to say how do they do things on fourth and short even to look at what kind of personnel teams are in on fourth and short that really starts to break it down into the nitty-gritty details i'm sure it's a uh, labor of love for you there oh absolutely so every week i always start the, one of the nooner games live i have the dvr out i'm stop stopping that thing all the way through so on average about three and a half to four hours per game, per side of the ball. If a team runs the ball, it generally goes by a little bit more faster than if a team is passing, just because passing just has a little bit more moving parts to it. You know, I'm doing protection and, you know, the routes targeted and a lot of other superfluous things that I'm tracking. Um, but on the long end, yeah, I can have a game as long as six hours sometimes. Like, I remember the LSU-Texas A&M game <laughs> from two years ago that had over 200 plays from scrimmage and set the D1 record in points. That thing took me basically a whole day to do just because there were just so many things to get in there. And then you had to add the overtime things, which was an additional thing because at the time um, we didn't have the – 
way to separate it out from the fourth quarter, so I had to figure out a way to separate it out. So, yeah, long story short, yeah, yeah. Three to three and a half to six hours on average, starting from noon on Saturday till about Wednesday night, Thursday morning. A lot of work. A lot of work. Yeah. Decent amount. Decent amount. But, yeah, it, it's definitely a labor of love. And, again, it, this is information you can hardly find anywhere else, especially because I'm not necessarily charging for the statistics. To get this basically – turned around before the next week's games I think is a big big uh, asset to have for gamblers and the casual fan yeah well the uh, listeners who uh, the the uh, yearly my bookie has started again so if you're into gambling and, and I could I'll, I'll, I'll connect the dots there uh, we gotta head to my bookie and head the SEC stat cat combine them both and uh we're we'll trying we're we'll trying to make you a winner uh here on here on saturdays there that, that is a five-star level transition there dave <laughs> <laughs> i try i try stars matter will stars matter <laughs> all right before we dive in here remember there is a new gators breakdown merch store at ebay.com slash str slash gators breakdown a couple options right there a few options there just uh if you're watching on the youtube version uh you can uh, see some of the uh newer designs right there and that's at ebay.com slash str slash gators breakdown and before we get into the rest of the episode and we'll talk specifically gators and sec football here remember you can find gators breakdown on news4jacks.com slash gators breakdown there you'll find all the gators breakdown episodes and news for jacks coverage of the gators and heck if you're a jaguars fan and all the news out there surrounding the jaguars over the last few days head to news for jacks and get all your jaguars coverage there uh, as well please share rate and review the show subscribe on youtube hit that like button if you're watching live right now or if you're just watching the YouTube version. Uh, and check us out on your favorite podcast platform. And follow Gators Breakdown on social media, on Twitter and Facebook, at Gators Breakdown. So, Clark, it's been mentioned plenty out there, uh, and most recently by SEC Network last week, that Kyle Trask is the SEC's best returning quarterback. Burst onto the scene, of course, last season, helped guide Florida, Florida to 11 wins after Felipe Franks goes down. Before we even get into the numbers of, of what Kyle Trask was able to do and what he brings to the table, you know, on the surface, what made him so successful in, in your mind? Uh, last week, you know, SEC Network's Roman Harper had him tops as he thinks, you know, Mullen has a lot of trust uh, in Trask to do the right thing. Playing within the offense instead, and extending that thought and making the right checks, he's decisive. You know what? play to call and what the results probably going to be when that play is called. So trust just kind of seems to be the key word here. Yeah, absolutely. Dependability, down to down dependability. So like one of the big stats that I like to lean on is called success rate. So as opposed to putting all yards into one big box and thinking they're all equal, this compartmentalizes it and like say, you know, on third down, if you don't get the first down, obviously it's a failed try. Well, it puts that type of parameters around all downs. So success rate for a down to be successful on first down, you have to gain 50% of the yards to gain on second down, 70% of the yards to gain on third and fourth, obviously 100%. Well, with those types of parameters, no returner is better on a down to down basis making decisions than Kyle Trask's. 51.1% success rate. So um, you got to like that. But that wouldn't happen if he didn't have his great accuracy. No returner bests his 66.7% accuracy percentage. So um, obviously what you want out of your quarterbacks to take care of the ball, make sound decisions, deliver accurate passes. Now, while he was very strong in those areas, one of his big concerns is 
allow he occasionally allows defenders to get those chances at at passes and potentially alter ball games. He had 27 interceptable passes last year. That tied with Ryan Helinski, not necessarily the best camp company to keep for most in the SEC. Roughly about 8% of Kyle Trask's touches could have resulted in touchdowns. Now, the, the, the perception around him would definitely be different if maybe three, four, five of those interceptable passes actually resulted in turnovers, especially the ones in the red zone, those contested passes in the red zone. So um, that's definitely something to keep an eye on. But look, across this whole sample, there's really not a whole lot to, to not like other than that. He's top four in... Uh, like I said, success rate, accuracy percentage, depth-adjusted accuracy percentage, which puts more weight the ball travels downfield. First down, touchdown rate, which is what you want. You want potency. You want your passes to matter. Even if you are nickel and diming, you are moving the chains. You are consistently progressing downfield. Your passes matter. And um, number one in uncatchable pass rate, which, again, that plays both sides. It, it, his balls don't necessarily um, – go where only his guys can get it, but they stay in play and they usually give his guys a stab at it. So while it also gives defenders a stab at it, for the most part, it does, you know, um, keep his pass catchers able to stay in the game. It's not like, you know, Jamie Newman, who, for instance, if he was missing, he was missing by a long shot. So at Wake Forest or Bo Nix, very similar at Auburn. If he was missing, his guys had no chance to get it. Well, if, if Kyle Trask is a little off target, well, it could still result in the completion but also an interception. So um, Kyle Trask, again, very good, down-to-down, dependable decision-maker. And despite not really starting a game in, what, like six years, he was one of the better passers against pressure. And that's one thing that you should really keep an eye on, even though it's not necessarily um, consistent from year to year. You definitely do want your passer to be better against pressure as opposed to being bad against pressure. So, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned Trask being good against pressure, and certainly Florida's offensive line got an awful lot of uh, awful lot of criticism last year, in some cases because they struggled running the ball. But I'm curious what you saw either in the film or in the charting about Florida's offensive line in the passing game and whether you think that played into some of the potential interceptions that Trask threw up there, or was it more that he was making the wrong read or he was putting the ball on the wrong side of his receiver? Like, Out of those 27 passes you're talking about, was it sort of a mishmash of all those things, or is it something that – maybe you can expect to improve with improved offensive line play. Well, yeah. I mean, again, since there was just a whole lot of uh, volatility, okay, first of all, his line did not do the best job of keeping him clean. Their pressure rate was ninth in SEC play, so bottom six, not fantastic. 32.4, so about one out of three dropbacks he had to get off his spot or, you know, hurry himself. So when he – like I said, aforementioned, lack of reps. He's already not the swiftest of foot type of athlete. He's definitely a more methodical, deliberate passer, um, not the quickest motion. So if you have to speed him up and, you know, if he is having to throw off his back foot a little bit more, his passes are more prone to die. And that is one of his issues why a lot of his downfield passes kind of died in the air is because his lower body mechanics just weren't up to snuff. And I, again, I don't know if that's just from lack of reps or if it is just from all the all-encompassing things of him um, being pushed off a spot, being pressured a whole bunch, it being the offense where it was just more get the ball out of your hand and let your guys do the damage after the catch or not. But, yeah, I mean, that's definitely a concern. Even though, like I said, he is good, it, it's not necessarily something that could carry over from one year to the other. 
Clark, uh, one thought I want you to hit on here on, on Trask, and you know, you said it in your Florida preview that's up at SEC StatCat that you released last week, and it's kind of turned on a big debate here with, uh, among uh, Gator fans here, and this is downfield throwing, and it's you know, does he have the arm? Does he have you know, does he have a big enough arm to, to, to push down the field? And, and you mentioned play action well, was common, uh, and we're, as were plenty of screens. And, you, and here's a quote from the preview here. No SEC passer taught Trask 14.1% screen rate. Uh, but you also make sure to mention that he's no nibbler, uh, he can, but he can improve down the field. And you know, we've seen that as well. So maybe a little slight there uh, from Trask. But, uh, but overall, you know, he got it done with room for improvement. And you know, we've mentioned it plenty of times with that lack of run game, kind of going back to the offensive line play a little bit too. That screen rate was going to be big because Florida had to use that to, to help in the run game a bit. Well, I don't think that's isolated to this to, to just this year because Mullen, no matter where he's been, that thing has been around 12 yep. to 15%. Even last year, I mean, you can look at Felipe Franks' screen rate. It was near the top. You can look at Emory Jones and his limited samples. It's a very applicable rate to Trask. It, obviously, it's not going to match it, but it's pretty close. So I think that's just more of a Dan Mullen thing more than the run game has just been rather muted as late. Because even when the run game was working last year, I think P. Ryan – he had close to a 50% success rate, if, if, if my memory serves, even though it was around 38 to 39% this past season, and yet the screen rate was rather consistent. So I just think that's more of a Mullen thing. But, again, when you can't run, that, when, run the ball on first down, you can't get those five easy yards, you can't get the defense on its heels, you have to be a little bit more creative and maybe lean into the screen a little bit more. And luckily, luckily for them, they still have a lot of good playmakers in space. You know, Tony is a guy who a lot of – I think people in your fan base have just been clamoring for more touches. Um, it's not exactly sure why, even after he came back from injury last year, he only saw about 15 targets or so. Um, you, you definitely want to get him the ball, especially with his breakaway speed. But screens, I just think, is a Dan Mullen trait more so than the run game not necessarily clicking last year. Right. So, you, I mean, you mentioned the run game. One of the things that I noted, especially in the Georgia game, is it felt like they were able to really squeeze Trask based on the fact that they just couldn't get anything going in the running game and that the defense didn't necessarily ever have to bring, you know, extra guys up into the box. Is is that something that you've seen either in the stats or in the film that you've watched, That especially against better opponents where the defense just says, oh, we're not going to worry about the run game. I mean, again, I'm sort of thinking about trying to fit the ball into tight spaces. At some point, if you drop eight in coverage, there's going to be a lot of tight spaces. I, I don't recall seeing a lot of teams play a whole lot of zone where they were dropping a lot of guys against Trask, but I'm curious what you saw in terms of what the running game or lack thereof sort of um, forced Trask into, especially against better opponents. Yeah, I mean, because at least early on, they wanted to do a little bit more zone type of zone blocking team to open up first down. So that's a little bit more take advantage of your box count more so than powers. All right, we, there's seven seven, eight guys in the box. We're going to run here no matter what. And they started to do a little bit more as the year progressed. But, yeah, they really wanted to pick their battles all across the line and try and get it there. And if it wasn't there, it was just, yeah. A lot more man coverage because of that, just because, I mean, when you have Freddie Swain and Copeland and Grimes and Van Jefferson, very tough to contain those guys across, you know, 53 and a half yards for more than four seconds if you're dropping back in the zone. And as I've seen, you know, like uh, Florida, very capable pass catchers, very efficient pass catchers for the most part. So when they went up against people who could man them up, yeah, they, they were easily bottled. And I think the last two years, the only people, the, the only opponent that's kept 
uh, Dan Mullen's offense under 300 yards has been Kirby Smart's Georgia team. So um, it, I don't want to say he has his number, but he definitely has a way to contain Florida's playmakers by just playing more man, by playing a little bit more, you know, um, just rushing your front four and playing a little bit more of a, a cushion defense, keep everything in bottle them up. And it's definitely worked because that's kind of how Florida wants to play. They'll take what's there, but if they can't get much production after the catch, after contact, well, then they're not, not so great. But against the lesser opponents like Vanderbilt, even Kentucky, where they can break away or use their, their, um, their more superior athletes in open field, it plays a much bigger difference than if they're playing against the number one defense in the country. All right, another debate here. And besides just Kyle Trask and, and, and his arm, Kyle Trask versus Emory Jones. <laughs> We've heard it. We, 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 and, you know, it was a bit of a surprise. We, we mentioned he, Kyle Trask comes in for Felipe Franks. When he goes down, that was a little bit of a, little bit of a surprise for some people. And, and that, that was not Emory Jones coming off the bench and, and leading Gators uh, to, to 11 wins. So we've seen some, seen some spots here where Emory Jones is, you know, go back to the Auburn game, and that's probably the – the biggest sample size we got uh, against a big-time opponent and seeing what Emory Jones can do. He did a lot in the LSU game as well uh, when that quarterback rotation probably worked the best it did all season long against a, a bigger-name opponent there. What have you seen from Emory Jones in his uh, limited sample size? Yeah, that's the thing. Limited sample size, but very great downfield accuracy. Um, above a 60% depth-adjusted accuracy. Again, very limited sample size, but that is fantastic. Again, Joe Burrows was one of the highest in – since I've been charting it, and it was around that threshold. Again, much, much more passes. But, again, Emory Jones, I think once Trask is out of the picture and Jones is the heir apparent, the guy, I think he's going to be able to run Dan Mullen's scheme as good as any quarterback since Tim Tebow because he has the mobility factor, because he has the downfield accuracy, and he has that X factor in the open field. Not against Trask. I mean, I mean, he's, no, he's an okay runner. They did some of that. Pack, I don't know exactly what they call it. I, I, I chart it as night. So it's basically like a two-back wildcat is how I chart it, how I differentiate it from the normal offense. So it's a lot of Q-heavy stuff, counters with bubble RPOs, you know, just playing the lateral space game. Um, so Emory Jones and Kyle Trask ran that. But Emory Jones, of course, look, he's so much of a better athlete in the open field. And if – um, Florida's run game, the traditional run game, is stifled like it was last year. He offers a lot more potency in terms of being able to kickstart some things. And that's why they did it last year. I mean, really, they, um, he was their only ball carrier to have a 50% success rate. Everyone else was below 40%. Even Kyle Trask was at 40.9%, and that's including quarterback sneaks and a lot of short yardage runs that kind of inflate his uh, his his numbers a little bit, but, you know, Emory Jones, um, very accurate downfield. I'm really excited, you know, if he can get more reps. Not that I'm wishing on, not that I'm wishing for a quarterback carousel because I think that will definitely get Florida out of a rhythm of sorts. It kind of did last year, even though they had a certain area of the field where they were a lot more prone to let Emory Jones come in, and that was when they got beyond their opponent's 50-yard line before they got into the red zone. He was a lot more prone to come in there than uh, anywhere else on the field. So that's getting from, okay, we might as well just take a long punt if we're in a fourth and long as opposed to settling for a field goal or getting into that short, you know, that fourth and short yard situation to keep the drive alive. So those crucial downs when, you know, you necessarily 
when you haven't been able to run the ball all before, you have at least a more consistent option on the field. And that's what I'd like to see from Florida. But again, if you're able to run in a traditional fashion, I think you would see a little bit less Emory Jones than you did last year. So that's just my take. So, I mean, you mentioned Trask 51.1% success rate and obviously said that was the best in the SEC, which means he's the best returning guy coming well, in the SEC. Well, best returner, yeah. Best Joe returner Burrow. in the SEC. Joe Burrow. Burrow. yeah. yeah. So, that, but yeah. so I guess my return. question is, how much of that is Mullen and how much of that is Trask? And so when you talk about the best quarterback in the SEC – you know, if you put other guys in Mullen's system, do you think you'd see the better results than you're getting from Trask, or do you think Trask, or do you think Trask is really maximizing what you can do in, in this sort of offense, at least for a quarterback who doesn't run all that much? I don't think he's maximizing it, but he's definitely not um, a detriment in any way. So one of the ways you like to set a quarterback's floor, obviously, like you want to take away all those superfluous things that can help pad a quarterback's numbers. So RPO completions screen completions, volatile play under pressure. So you need to look at what they do in the drop back game when there are clean pockets because if you can't complete a pass when all situations are perfect, when exactly can you expect it to do so consistently? So that's how you set someone's floor. So when you scrap all that stuff away, Kyle Trask still looks to be very good. Heck, his success rate doesn't even move. It stays at 51.1, even when you take away all those screens and um, outlet screens all, out of his uh, resume. He's, he's still top three in downfield accuracy. He's still top five in first down touchdown rate. He's still number one in uncatchable pass rate. But where he loses people is his explosive pass rate. So his screens definitely allow him to get a lot more potency than the drop game. He's a lot more um, apt to throw an eight-yard curl or a 15-yard out route or corner than he is to throw downfield. And again, I don't know if that plays into his aforementioned lack of top-end arm strength or if that's just coaching for Dan Mullen's scheme. Like a lot of their favorite schemes are seam sideline combinations. So um, Haas, you see the Patriots run this all the time, or at least they used to, um, with when Gronkowski and Edelman in their prime. So they would go five wide. Um, it's a two-man combo with a seam fade read, outside hitch, and then the middle man, the Y, will run a juke route. So um, I think it was the Auburn game where Freddie Swain took the inside slant tw the distance to a touchdown. So very favorable type of scheme. Um, but again, yeah, some of it is Mullen's drop-back passing schemes. He knows he's not going to ask – Trask to throw all verts a whole lot. He's going to ask him to um, nickel and dime with Haas, with smash, with drive, with shallow, stuff in front of his face, stuff that's, you know, three to 15 yards downfield that he doesn't necessarily have to have a top end arm to complete, but at the same time can really stress defenses at multiple levels. So um, even though, yeah, you would like him to be a little bit more potent, yeah, you know, he could be a little bit better downfield accuracy, but all else considered, there's not many quarterbacks you would want in his place. Now, um, like we were talking in the pregame show, if you were to flip him and Kellen Mond, I think Kellen Mond would be one of those people that would absolutely, absolutely shine in this offense, and I'm not so sure Kyle Trask would look all that great running Jimbo Fisher stuff, but then again, outside of Mond, very similar quarterbacks to Kyle Trask's skill set is across the conference. Not too many mobile guys coming back, a lot more quote-unquote pocket passers. And if he's a quote-unquote cemented-footed pocket passer and he still looks rather um, adequate to above-level, you know, pro-level quarterback, then I think a lot of players with this skill set, skill set should absolutely be able to do so under Dan Mullen. But again, 
take him out of the scheme, I'm not so confident that he can keep playing at this high level. All right, let's go to uh, where Kyle Trask got a lot of help uh, last year in those pass catchers. And, you know, not only – I mean, every metric out there, not only yours, but every metric out there is going to show how important Kyle Pitts is to, to Kyle Trask in this offense. Uh, you know, but in, in sharing a lot of playing time with the likes of Freddie Swain, Vin Jefferson, Josh Hammond, Tyree Cleveland – you got some metrics that show Trevon Grimes and, and has some big time numbers there uh, as a returning pass catcher for for the Gators and, and you know what makes you think Grimes can uh, can be a SEC breakout candidate? Well, the reason why he'll be an SEC breakout candidate in my mind is yak matters, yards after the catch matters, and a good amount of his uh, targets happen behind the line of scrimmage. In fact, twelve. So it's about mm, let me see how many. Sorry about that. rough math about. A quarter of his targets happened behind the line of scrimmage. Some were true screens, some were RPO screens, outlets. Undesigned, you know, if the, if there's space, he's going to get the ball. So if he gets the ball in space, he's got to be able to make plays in space. And like I said, he's one of the top returning success uh, receivers in terms of success rate. Only Jalen Waddle tops his 68% success rate versus SEC opponents last year. 60% of his pass, of his catches resulted in either a first down or a touchdown. That's crazy, especially considering, like I said, about a quarter of his passes occurred behind the line of scrimmage. So being able to take advantage of the defense at all levels of the field, being able to make guys miss, being an effective playmaker in space, and being looked to being the number one um, I would say wide out as opposed to Kyle Pitts. He's a tight end, even though he does want line up out wide quite a lot. Trevon Grimes is their quote-unquote most traditional wide out. And since he is um, so efficient and he doesn't drop a whole lot of passes and he just gives you so many bang-for-buck opportunities, both um, up to the catch and after the catch, he's definitely on my radar for a breakout candidate for this season, especially considering that the number one receiver in the conference just decided not to play. Well, and I guess, you know, talking about sort of the other the other teams in the conference, I'm curious, you know, uh, I'm have you had an opportunity to break down Jamie Newman and and what he's going to be or at least what he's going to be walking into in terms of that Georgia offense? I don't know whether the Todd Munkin offense necessarily fits what he was doing at at, uh, you know, his previous stop. But then, you know, what do you see with Newman? And do you think that um He's always been cracked up to be by some of the media who thinks he's really going to be able to uh, to take that Georgia offense over the top in a place where Jake Fromm couldn't. I mean, this is definitely a candidate where you you think his film and his statistics will definitely create a divide in how his perception is. So pro football focus of all people, they think he's the third best college quarterback. I don't even think he's in the top five in the SEC by his statistics and how he played. So when I charted him, I charted him against his five hardest opponents in the SP+. That's basically like the Kim Palmore ratings of college football. It's done by ESPN's Bill Conley. Very good tool. The new ratings actually came out today, which I was spending all day updating the schedules. But besides that, his five hardest opponents, he was more vertical than any SEC passer last year. Average depth of target um, over 13 yards. Basically, a quarter of his passes traveled 20 yards or more last year in those five games I charted. Um, problem. That's a high degree of difficulty to consistently do that and bank on winning, especially if you're playing against your hardest opponents that way. Um, likewise, his success rate, his depth-adjusted accuracy, his first down touchdown rate all fell outside the top five because of that hard playing style. But with that vertically inclined ability, 
something that's been kind of clamored for from the Georgia fan base who, you know, they've, they've, in their perspective, they kind of ran a, a scheme that um, was more, all right, we're bigger than you, we're stronger than you, we're faster than you, we're just going to line up and you're going to have to stop us. Well, against the lesser opponents, that's worked. But when they go against their elite defenses, well, they're rather predictable and they get side, they get off track rather easily. I mean, even last year, South Carolina did not play a good offensive game, and yet their defense was able to hold their own against that lifeless scheme because it was so one. I wouldn't say it was one-dimensional, but it was so concerted inside zone. You knew what they were going to do, and if you just got under their skin a little bit, they just self-destructed. And of course, from that point on, they really could not control the box, and that was it. So, um, there's thought that Todd Monken will allow the verticality um, aspect to come in because of his uh, work with Dan Aaron, um, not Dan Aaron's, Bill, <laughs> Bruce Arians in Tampa Bay, and working for Freddie Kitchens and the Browns last season, there's a lot more thought that that vertical passing game can come. So that's going to help Jamie Newman potentially um, unlock his potential with uh, quote unquote better supporting cast than Wake Forest. Um, they're going to have uh, Zamir White, who's one of the few returners who has a 50% success rate rushing the ball. He has George Pickens, one of the top downfield receivers who did not drop a pass in SEC play last year. Um, so there's a lot to like with Jamie Newman, but that style of play statistically does not leave a whole lot to the imagination in terms to inspire just because only about one out of three passes on average from that five-game sample size resulted in success just because of that high degree of difficulty. And, I mean, um, that wasn't just it because, like, even his short throws, his intermediate throws, it wasn't like he was necessarily, um, you know, Joe Burrow out there. He, he did leave a lot to be desired in terms of accuracy, even if his athleticism is palpable, running a less than... I would say desirable scheme. So they ran this extended mesh type of read scheme. Usually you have you know a zone a zone read or a power read where the running back will cross the quarterback's face and they'll each attack either side of the center. Well, what happens in the in this scheme, the extended mesh, it's almost like a draw play where the front side will will pass set, they'll drop step, they won't look to get any type of downfield push, and they'll basically ward the defensive front where they want to go, kind of be like a Maneva zone defense, if, if you were, kind of mold themselves and let the, let the hole come that way, and then if the running back does not get the handoff from the read, he's then the lead blocker, which, again, describing it sounds rather ridiculous. The first time I saw this, I thought I was losing my mind because... Obviously, this did not negate uh, or did not generate a good amount of success, despite the athleticism with Newman moving the ball with his legs and his downfield um, acumen throwing the ball. But Todd Monken really think it's going to be a lot more vertical. Um, if I was them, I'd be a lot more excited to get a lot more modernized in terms of run pass options because only Tennessee, by volume, ran RPOs less than Georgia last year, but no one was better in terms of success. Clark Brooks from SEC StatCat joining us here on Gators Breakdown. So just went the Georgia route just a bit, and, of course, that's going to scream Florida's defense. And, you know, that's the one game Florida's defense, especially on third down, just hasn't really uh, shown up here in Jacksonville. So on the defensive side of the ball, you mentioned you'd like you know, Florida to get better at generating more pressure on average. When we've seen Florida generate pressure, we've seen Florida get sacks, and there's different ways to, to, to measure that. So, you know, how would that help the defense that already creates and, you know, what they do? 
you know, pressure and havoc are kind of two different things in the way you look at it here. You know, Florida's havoc rate is way up there and, and some of the other things they do so well. So how do you measure, you know, pressure versus havoc? So havoc is just more as a pressure is just one form of havoc. Havoc can also be deflected passes. It could be uh, deflected balls at the line of scrimmage. It could be quarterback hits. It's just a little bit more um, to it than just pressures. And of course, some of that's by design. You know, Todd Grantham, he really does on early downs. He likes to play a little bit more shell, keep things in front of them. But on third down, he'll bring the house. And that's usually like what you like to see. So with the second lowest pressure rate, that kind of plays into that with the third highest sack rate, mind you. Um, but yeah, like you said, very great at um, generating havoc, a lot of active hands in the secondary, a lot of things that are outside of that box score. Like I said, you know, sacks show up in the box score, pressure's not so much. So some of that is scheme driven. Some of that is just Todd Grantham, just, that's just how he is. That's just um, how he likes to operate. But again, um, if you can get pressure with your four or three downs, You've seen throughout the history of the last 20 years, both professionally and in college, how much scarier that can make a defense. Florida State, when Mark Stoops first left for Kentucky, they were able to win the national championship just bringing four downs. You mentioned Georgia against Florida last year, and they were able to just drop back and play man coverage, just getting pressure with their four downs. The reason Tom Brady has been able to be beaten in the Super Bowl by the Giants both times, they were able to get pressure with their four downs without being able to blitz. So. If you're able to speed up that quarterback's clock and you're not necessarily taking someone out of the secondary to you know, create a gap where a, a route might go through and you have to have that quarterback hold on to that beat that extra longer, bad things are more likely to occur for that offense, whether it be forcing a ball into tighter coverage, misreading a secondary, or you know, just taking a coverage sack. So um, definitely something to keep an eye on if Todd Grantham does want to blitz a little bit more, be a little bit more aggressive, because of um, the all-SEC schedule and because they have one of the easier slates in the conference. Um, I don't know if that will entice a little bit more aggressiveness or if it will allow him to actually be a little bit more conservative. It's like, look, we're already better than you. We don't have to do anything fancy. Um, we can just rush four and, and, and all that, but there's just so much out there with the all-SEC schedule and what we all plan to do because we didn't have a screen game or a, a a spring game or anything like that to help gauge um, new personnel, newcomers, or anything like that. It's just all wait and see for week one. And, and before Will jumps in here, one last thought, we'll wrap up the defense here. You know, Florida likes to claim DBU, uh, and pressure rate can go hand-in-hand hand with pass defense. And with a oh, lack yes, of absolutely. And with a lack of pressure, you, know, you pointed this out well in your, in your Florida preview, you know, with a lack of pressure, and especially in key moments, Florida's pass defense suffered. And we certainly saw that versus the better teams that Florida saw on the schedule last season. Yeah, I mean, that's one, absolutely. So, it plays into that, whether it just be Todd Grantham being adverse to blitzing all the time, but and he'd rather just keep more guys in pressure in a shell defense. But if you're going to do shell, obviously that's been don't break. So they were the ninth, ninth in success rate, passing success rate defensively in SEC play last year. Florida was so not particularly great, even though they were um, um, second at explosive plays. Just not being top end defensively in terms of down to down defense is concerning, um, especially you know all else considered. But yeah, absolutely. The more pressure you can generate on average, the more flustered you can make your opposing passers. The more bad things are likely to occur on average. Now turnovers, you know, it's not like alchemy. You're just you're not in a lab. And it's not a 100% 
foolproof thing. No matter if you get a 25% pressure rate, you're going to get a sack rate on X. That's just not how it works. You just have to play the numbers game. You just It's just like if you were drafting a team and you want to compile draft picks, you're more likely to hit on a draft pick the more picks you have. So that's kind of how it is with the sack game. You have to increase the levels of pressure. You have to increase the likelihoods to get under a quarterback skin, whether that be um, – whether that be blitzing, whether that be just dropping more in coverage and confusing him, holding on to the ball a little bit longer, making him force the ball into more tight window coverages, what have you. But, yeah, absolutely. The more, um, or I should say, the lack of pressure you have, it definitely correlates with how worse your down-to-down pass defenses is if you're just allowing the quarterback to operate with a clean pocket all the time. Like I said, if you're going to set a quarterback's floor, it's dropbacks from a clean pocket. So if you're consistently giving that stuff up, that means your defensive floor is going to be high, and you don't want a high floor defensively. You want that thing near the near rock bottom, so it's a little bit more of a pressure on that offense as opposed to the offense. You're waiting for the offense just to mess up. Yeah, so you know, talking about the DBs, the, there was some consternation within the Florida fan base last year, at least with the safety rotation and the four different guys who were rotating in there, along with Trey Dean, sort of playing at the star. I'm curious in terms of both the strengths and the weaknesses of the four guys that they had playing at safety, and and maybe what Florida should expect at that position in, in 2020. I'm going to be honest. I would note 100%. I focus more on offense, but um, just definitely just speaking. Um, generally um the safety position is has become the tight end of the defense this is where you're going to see the game changers you know moving kyle pitts to the outside as wide receiver and having that uh, versatility to play him inside and out and you've seen how people in the professional ranks like derwin james tyron matthew jamal adams who are these jacks who can play inside the box middle third safety um it really can change the game so um, in terms of finding versatility in that position, it definitely opens the door for what you can do defensively. And unfortunately, I can't speak um, specifics for those four players. But just generally speaking, if you're able to find a guy that can you know, have a downfield blitz mentality and who can also bail and play middle third or deep half or uh, bump and run someone on the outside or from the star position, well, then it absolutely opens the doors up for all your defensive potential, especially if you're just looking to bring four downs on every play, you're not looking to blitz on every play, and you're looking to really change up uh, tendencies down to down. Clark and we know just recently speaking to the coaches this week, they have really, you know, us media guys have kind of hammered them on that nickel position <laughs> a bit. So, yeah, we, we've we, we've been told, you know, Marco Wilson, we talked to him last night as well. He was saying, you know, he, he's, he's still going to play that position a bit. He slid, slid in there uh, when Florida needed some help after Trey Dean struggled there. So, you're going to see Marco outside corner. You're going to see him play at nickel. And then Trey Dean uh, is, is probably going to be slide, sliding back to safety to get some more athleticism there. And another thing is that uh, Brad Stewart has been also working, you know, he's been playing safety his whole time at Florida had been working at nickel as well. So kind of as you're saying, you know, you move Kyle Pitts from inline tight end to, to split him out wide. Well, I think it's what Florida's doing on the defensive side of the ball too with Marco Wilson trading Brad Stewart. A lot of cross training because as Todd Grantham said, you don't know because of COVID and what – is what, what, what this season is going to bring. So cross-training is a must, but you're also seeing it with guys that you know can make plays, but just need to see more consistency in, especially with trading and Brad Stewart. And on the flip side, if you know someone's going to be basically 
a nickelback or a star and you know he has a little bit of a 20 percent chance he could be something else it it, it it plays a little bit more in the game planning factor right? you can't you know you're less predictable it, it, and that's what it's all about it's, it's about not tipping the offense what you're in whether you know if it's a, a creeper pre-snap you know, um, a safety lining over top of the nickelback and maybe keying a little bit, a little bit, you know, a snap or a beat before the snap too soon. Um, you definitely don't want that. But having that versatility, especially in a atypical offseason when someone could test or, you know, a whole position group could be wiped out in a week, worst case scenario, you got to have as many guys possible as cross trained, like you said, as possible to uh, to cover your butt. <laughs> worst case, yeah. All right, let's get a quick word in uh, from my bookie, my bookie before we uh, finish up with Clark. And winning season returns at my bookie. Winning season means doubling your first deposit, and winning season means Survivor Super Contest and squares at my bookie. Winning season means hitting all your parlays and props with your feet up, watching your team trounce their rivals. Rejoice, it's time to celebrate football season and it's time to bet on some football. Invest in your intuition, your promo code GATERS. That's what you do. My bookie and use the promo code GATERS and double your first deposit. New players get up to $1,000 in free play designed to add more excitement to the sports you love and the games that you bet. From live betting to championship futures, every play you want to make is waiting at my bookie. It's simple, make your pick, Win big, collect your cash. Use promo code GATERS and double your first deposit. Your winning season begins today only at my bookie. So, Clark, let's get into uh, Gators' schedule just a bit here. And, uh, of course, Gators open up with uh, Ole Miss. we got those times. We'll, we'll hit that up uh, after we, we sign off with Clark. Uh, game times released today for the first few games. But uh, that Ole Miss quarterback situation, Lane Kiffin comes in and, hey, look, it, right now if you go and look at some Ole Miss practice reports, it may be a 50-50 battle with Plumlee and, and, and Matt Corral here. Uh, but you, you kind of alluded to it earlier. If it is John Rice Plumlee and he's leading the Rebels offense, uh, what, what does he bring to the table? You're not so high on his throwing ability. No, I'm not. Um, he's either first – or uh, last or second to last in passing six amongst the returners with 80 attempts last year. So there were nine of them. So he's eighth or ninth in passing success rate, accuracy percentage, depth adjusted accuracy percentage, first down touchdown rate, uncatchable pass rate, and interceptable pass rate. Now I know he's a, he was a true freshman last year, but um, that's just not inspiring to say the least, uh, despite his home run ability running the ball. So he's definitely going to offer something more in the open field. Um, definitely more of a run first quarterback. Not that he um, is a complete lost cause throwing the football, but um, basically 40% of his attempts uh, traveled between zero and five yards between the hash and the sideline to the right. So Mm. that's not necessarily asking him to do a whole lot. There's a lot of rollouts, a lot of quick outs to the right, like I said. Uh, not a whole lot of aggressive play calling. Now, he did take his chances um, because if it was just a muted, down-to-down -down, uh, running attack and teams were crowding the box, obviously that's going to open things up downfield for more one-on-one -on -one shots. But Matt Corral, low-key, was – one of the few returning SEC passers by Pro Football Focus to rock a 70 grade or better. And he was obviously thrown into the fire quite often, um, usually trying to spark a late rally or, you know, like in the Egg Bowl, he was trying to lead a last-second drive that ultimately he did his, he did his part completing a few key passes deep downfield. So 
He's actually top five in passing success rate, first down touchdown rate, explosive pass rate, and average depth of target. So he's taking his chances. While as Plumley, yeah, it's just he's near the bottom and dang near everything. And it's just, it's just really hard for me in today's day and age where um, the pass is just so much more of a premium than running the ball in today's game that it, it, to say that Plumley should be the starting quarterback today. Now, I know his highlight plays are probably better. I know his legs definitely excite you, but. In 2020, I gotta have my quarterback. I gotta know that my quarterback can complete a 10-yard out route. Who doesn't necessarily have to have the pocket moving? Doesn't have to operate 100% out of empty to get advantageous looks or run, you know, hitches the space. I need to know that he can get a first down on third and long with his arm. Yeah, great. He's great outside of pressure or great outside of structure. Sure, but that is not consistent. And like again, when I want to talk about someone's floor, when you strip right, strip away all that stuff like RPOs, screens, play versus pressure, well Plumley is still near the bottom of the conference, being worst passing success rate, accuracy percentage, um, and uncatchable pass rate from clean dropback situations amongst the non-returners. So definitely not inspiring. Well, as Corral, he's top four in passing success rate. He's the fifth best accuracy, second best first down touchdown rate, third uh, best interceptable and uncatchable pass rates from clean pockets. So he just offers so much more upside as a passer. But, of course, some of the, some of the quotes coming out of their camp are Lane Kiffin, wants to get the ball to playmakers in space. So you can read that one or two ways. That could be, okay, we're going to lean into the empty stuff with Plumley, see what he can give us, or they're going to run a lot more screens. And Ole Miss, for whatever reason, I don't know if it was a Rich Rod thing or if it was just because they didn't have the linemen or um, pass catchers to make plays in space, but they had one of the lower screen rates within the SEC last season. So maybe Lane Kiffin coming along means, all right, we're going to take some more easy completions to space within design as opposed to just running around outside of structure and just letting our playmakers be playmakers. That all remains to be seen. But at this point in time, I got to like where uh, Matt Corral sits as opposed to throwing the football with his upside as opposed to Plumlee's legs. So I guess, you know, when you're looking at the schedule, you've got the four ranked teams, A&M, LSU, Georgia, and Tennessee are the four, four that Florida's playing. Obviously, Texas A&M on the road, Tennessee on the road. Not exactly sure how many fans will actually be in the stands. But when you look at those four teams, if you think of those as maybe the four threats to Florida this year, um, and, you know, obviously Georgia is sort of the must win in that for, for Dan Mullen here in year three. But, you know, Texas A&M, LSU, and Tennessee, which one of those do you think is the – toughest game for Florida coming up in 2020, considering LSU lost Burrow, Texas A&M obviously has, has, I think, gotten better under under Jimbo Fisher, but hasn't necessarily broken through. And then Tennessee, late in the season, on the road with Guarantano, maybe by the end of the year being established as the, as the you know, fifth-year senior quarterback. I like Garantano a whole lot. You know, a lot of people don't know that he was a big reason for their late-season push being able to complete downfield passes. In fact, he's one of the, he is the number one uh, returner in depth adjusted accuracy, uh, deep completion percentage, and a whole bunch of other stuff, but that's besides the point. I think the hardest game for the Florida Gators this season is going to be at Texas A&M, especially in the eyes of the SP. Um, I think it's definitely going to be their hardest opponent in terms of both sides of the ball because A&M is top 14 in the initial SP Plus on both sides of the ball. They play a top 
in quarterback. Now, uh, AM had a DB opt out this afternoon, and that does matter. It does matter, especially if uh, you're playing a uh, passing inclined offense like Florida. But they, both teams had a very similar modus operandi last year. Um, both were maybe forced to pass a little bit more just because their run games could not create pushes by the traditional sense for Texas A&M. Um, their best running game came from Kellen Mond with Q stretches or triple options or you know where he's able to get outside the edge of the formation and get yards that way as opposed to pounding it inside with a spiller between the tackles. So they had to pass a lot more in early downs, especially in SEC play. In fact, not even LSU passed as much as the Aggies in SEC play last year. So the SB Plus actually thinks this game is going to be close to a pick em, but Florida has the slight edge by about a half a point. This is as slim as you can be. And since, again, both teams are top 15 on both sides of the ball, both play very similarly, this is going to be really both teams. Uh, I guess A&M has uh, Alabama the week prior. So, um, and, of course, Florida is at, uh, hosting LSU the next week. Both teams can can argue trap game, but um, being on the road, traveling to College Station, which by my math is pretty far from Gainesville. This isn't like traveling to Tuscaloosa or Lexington. It's kind of a far trip. So b doing this in week three when there's still a whole lot of uncertainty in terms of roster turnover, exactly who teams are, how good are they, that, that, that game just really sticks out to me for a whole lot of reasons outside of the fact that it's really close in the SP Plus, um, just because of the, how both teams play similarly. You have two good quarterbacks. Um, a lot of questions around the run game, but you do have a number of quality pass catchers. Jamon Osman is one of those guys like Trevon Grimes, who a lot of people might overlook just because there is a lot of deep pass catchers in this conference. But, you know, he's top six basically almost across the board in, in, in everything you like. And he's mostly of a intermediate pass catcher. He's not necessarily going to burn you downfield, but, you know, he is a solid option to target between 11 and 19 yards downfield so and Jalen Weidemeyer um, talk about it uh, an under-the-radar tight end person so Kyle Trask is definitely one of the more downfield oriented um, tight ends well Jalen Weidemeyer is probably the best after the catch he's very good at making guys miss one-on-one -on -one in space whether it be as an outlet um, a blocking outlet he'll block and release whether it be an RPO outlet or in the dropback passing game so they have a, a lot of Pretty good under-the-radar pass catchers to keep an eye on. Texas A&M does. But again, I think this is going to come down to explosive plays. And that was really um, Texas A&M's detriment last year. They were able to nickel and dime, sure. They could get five, six yards, sure. But very little of their pass patterns went for 20-plus. In fact, I'm going to look it up right here so I have the number correct. Um, Texas A&M, in terms of explosive passes last year, um, only 10.3%. So they were one of the six... Oh, I'm sorry. That was their overall. 5.39% of their passes only get, went for 20 or more yards. Only South Carolina was worse within the SEC last year. That's not what. That's not the company you want to be in, um, as opposed to Florida, who got a little bit more potency from screens. Not so much their dropback game, but they, their potency was there. It just didn't come from traditional means. So, if Florida's, you know, shell type of defense. They pick their battles with their pressures, with their blitzes, and they can keep um, bottling up Texas A&M and kind of 
allow them to play the way they want to play. I think it definitely shapes up to be one of the more competitive games. And I like Florida, to be honest with you. I mean, I just like Florida in that game just because of the continuity. You're bringing back both of your play callers on both sides of the ball. You're bringing back your quarterback. You're bringing back one of the top efficient receiving options. You're bringing back the best downfield pass-catching tight ends, and your defense returns more key starters than Texas A&M, who, like I said, is has a few guys opting out in the last few weeks. All right, Clark, man, you you uh, you really brought it, man. That was a that was, that was a lot there. Uh, as you bring it at uh, SEC StatCat, uh, of course, everybody follow him on Twitter at SEC underscore StatCat. Uh, what you got coming up on the site? What I got coming up on the site. So I'm updating those previews I talked about. Obviously, it doesn't do good to have SP Plus ratings from February, basically prognosticating everyone's schedule. So this afternoon, I, 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 I updated all the graphics, and I'm just going to re-update all the game-by-game blurbs. So for each game that's going to be played this season in the SEC, I wrote about 150 words, a little blurb taken from key statistics from last year's play and some um, key stats from the SP Plus that was released this afternoon. And in addition to that, maybe a little bit more fun thing, um, maybe not so much of a topical release, but I wanted to put out um, the top concepts by down offensively. So what teams found the most success with on each down. So a little taste of that, I can just tell you. Uh, having put it together uh, the other day, that uh, one of Florida's favorite concepts, Haas, is basically across all, Haas and Smash across all um, all three downs in terms of top ten success rates. So that's something to keep in mind on, especially if it's a team that definitely likes to hone in on this look or is looking for a specific thing against a certain coverage. Because obviously you're not going to run Haas against too many cover fours. That's a lot more of a cover three beater, a cover two beater. But again, it all, it's just a matter of preferences, and each team coaches it differently. So um, look out for that and the updated preview pieces that I know you guys are going to definitely walk away with. A, at least maybe you wouldn't know one particular thing, this particular thing, but I wanted to at least put out information that you won't find in any typical preview piece um, like you would see on like 24-7 or something like that. Awesome, awesome. Clark, man, thank you much. Uh, we'll try and probably bring you on maybe around midseason, uh, something like that, so we can maybe the bye week before Georgia, so we can kind of dive in to see how similar this Florida offense looks with Kyle Trask and maybe how different it looks uh, with, with Kyle Trask from, from, from a year ago. Oh, and I'll definitely look forward to that. Of course, um, I'll be charting each game weekly. Um, usually before Thursday, they'll all be done. But I, basically, yeah, from noon on Saturday until that time, I am live charting all these games, getting these stats around to you, which are 100% free. So definitely check that out at secstatcat.com. All right. Thanks, Clark. All right. Well, just uh, a lot of uh, notes here again. But, man, that was a lot of good data, a lot of good, uh, a lot of good concepts there from, from Clark. Yeah, you can tell he likes doing what he's doing there. That's, uh, that's for sure. Obviously, uh, um, some things that are for the advanced fan, but also some things I think that are for just the casual fan as well. I'd encourage people to go take a look, and uh, certainly you'll hear me or see me referring to that in the stuff that I put out there too because um, you know the charting is an awful lot of work. I understand that. It's, it's great that he provides that as a free service, but to be able to use that and sort of break it down into what does it mean for Florida, what does it mean for um, you know for the Gators in terms of the opponent they're playing against is, is something that we'll be able to look at throughout the year. Will, man, here we go. Boom. We got some game times coming up ah. here. Yes, there we go. 
noon kickoffs for the first couple games uh, for the Gators there, Ole Miss and South Carolina. Look, uh, kind of just quickly looking at that, those two, I know the West trips out to Mississippi for noon kickoffs have not been good for the Gators in the, in the past. Uh, been just really, really struggles, especially the good Ronzik days and the games against Mississippi State and Ole Miss, and those games just didn't necessarily turn out well uh, for the Gators. But, you know, this is different. First game of the season after everything that has went on this offseason, there's no reason not to be ready for that game. So I, I, that that kind of stuff doesn't really kind of creep into my mind about past history. And then Florida-South Carolina, also a noon game. And, Will, I went back and tracked this. Florida and South Carolina have played – have kicked off at noon in every game since 2014. They have played that many noon games in a row. So whether that be the fault of Florida, you know, falling on their face under um, uh, Will Muschamp and, and Jim McElwain, uh, but, you know, even the last couple of years, uh, as South Carolina has ne- not necessarily been one of the better SEC teams, uh, a lot of noon kickoffs for Florida, South Carolina is going to continue uh, for, for uh, this season. Yeah, well, clearly your dog doesn't like the 11 a.m. start at all. No, he is. Uh, you mentioned that. He started he, going nuts. He's uh, he's not doing well right now. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that's not a good sign uh, for, for things to come. But, uh, yeah, but yeah. no, I mean, so, uh, yeah, the first game of the year, it's at 11. Usually that 11 a.m. start time is one where you've, you're coming off of, you know, a loss to Georgia or a hard-fought win against Georgia, something like that. I mean, this is a very different situation, right? It's going to be the first game. And it's not as though you can go out party the night before either in a in a um, in a strange town because uh, they're going to be enforcing curfew pretty heavy I'm sure so I, I think some of these road games are going to be a little bit different because of COVID just in terms of what people are allowed to do and the freedom that they're given or not given w- when they go on the road as well um, the South Carolina thing I, I guess I hadn't really remembered that I'm, I'm thinking maybe the the last 330 one was the CBS one where Florida just absolutely destroyed them because South Carolina self-destructed and had a bunch of turnovers. I know there was like a, a drop punt that I think Luchez Pirifoy recovered, which tells you something about how long ago. That yeah, it was, was 2012. I think they had a night game in 2013 and then starting the noon, the noon streak in 2014, which was uh, the game that got Will Muschamp fired. Well, thank goodness. But (laughs) unfortunately, though, we know where that led to. So uh, maybe not so thank goodness. But, you know, one of the things I think is going to be interesting this year is there are going to be a lot of noon tilts that are unusual for noon tilts. Yeah. Just because the schedule is jam packed. I mean, you start looking, you got Alabama, LSU after the Masters. You got got all sorts of stuff going on. And and, um, the reality is because there aren't the cupcakes that usually sort of intersperse the schedule. you know, ESPN, ESPN two, CBS are really going to have to fight over over who they who they put on and and uh, and how that works. So, I mean, I'm looking forward to it. Right? Usually, during college football season, I mean, I love the sport, but even then, when Ohio State is playing, you know, Youngstown State, it's like, all right, I, I may go. Th- throw a baseball round or a football around with my kids, but there aren't going to be any of those this year, right? Because one, Ohio State won't be playing anybody. And two, you know, it's all SEC, SEC or ACC, ACC. It's, it's going to be fun Saturdays coming up pretty soon. Absolutely there. And as you see, October 17th, 330 LSU as well. So all these games here that they have early times for Ole Miss, South Carolina, and uh, October 17th versus LSU are all ESPN games. And then, of course, it's also announced Florida, Georgia, November 7th. We knew that, but that, of course, no surprise there, will be a 3.30 uh, kickoff there. Man, uh, my dog Oliver is not doing so good right now. Uh, 
We took him to the vet this morning, and uh, he's got some back problems. So hopefully, we get, 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 gave him some medicine, and we'll get it all figured out. Well, he he doesn't he doesn't like the Florida Georgia tilt either. Man. No, no, I, I don't know. This, is, this isn't a good sign. <laughs> I mean, look, the reality is, is you got a ten game year. I I think if Florida goes nine and one and loses to Georgia. You're still going to have a bunch of people who are disappointed with the year. I think you could probably go eight and two and beat Georgia and have a bunch of people be very satisfied with yeah. the year. So <laughs> it's a really interesting dichotomy. I mean, from a recruiting perspective, from just a confidence perspective that the program's headed in the right direction, um, you got a little bit extra time to prepare, right? I mean, it's been moved back a couple of weeks. Um, both teams are going to be coming off a bye week. It's a little bit weird that it's not on Halloween. You sort of just sort of expect it to be no. to be right around there, and the fact that it's going to be a week later. A little bit odd, but you know, three thirty CBS. Um, you know, playing that game in Jacksonville as much as it can be, it's going to feel going to feel almost like normal once you see that. The, the only thing is, you won't see the division right down the stands unless they uh, unless yeah. they fill thing unless DeSantis is allowed one hundred percent attendance by then. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I suppose that probably won't happen. Though it will be after the election, so maybe he'll have maybe they'll have all the people in the stands since the election will have taken place. <laughs> but I mean, that'll be the only thing that's a little bit weird, right? Is that you don't see that division of the fans right down the stands but uh, you know one of the really cool parts about college football this year and you know i love college football i will watch it when it's on i watched the fcs game the other day um but one of the cool things about college football this year is that it really is going to it, it it brings back a sense of normalcy that the nba just hasn't been able to provide based on the way they've sort of put things in the bubble major league baseball you're looking at like the cardboard cutouts in the stands every time there's a foul ball that doesn't seem right you know hockey is sort of a niche sport so you're not really you know that but college football is something everyone talks about it's something everybody sort of has you know some line in the sand in terms of a team that they follow and and so the fact that that's going to be back is, is going to be great and then the fact that we'll be able to rip on the big 10 the entire time as they try to get started by like thanksgiving <laughs> we'll we'll just make it doubly good so um i'm really looking forward to it man i the um the excitement is palpable now the weather's changing and it really does feel like it's becoming fall up here and so uh you know in a couple of weeks we're gonna have real big boy football yeah, it feels a little feels a little more real when you get those when you get those game times. So you sit there and say, "Oh, noon, there we go." I'm ready. At least we don't have to wait around all day for 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 uh, first kickoff for the Gators here. Uh, Will, before we wrap up quickly, we got to talk to uh, Todd Grantham and some of a couple defensive players, Marco Wilson, Ventrell Miller. Uh, Grantham calling Marco Wilson the most versatile player he's coached and probably the most versatile player he's ever had uh, there. So big big kudos there for Wilson, and, and that's in relation to Marco being able to play cornerback and, and nickel and look I didn't necessarily think we would see Marco play as much nickel as what's kind of what we're hearing uh, from him and, and, and Grantham here uh, so you know Grantham says that really creates value for our team for himself he's an excellent star and when you talk about a guy that can be instinctive that can cover and you and you know he's got uh, great physicality so he goes quote so I've been fortunate to have some good players at corner I would say he's probably the most versatile guy that I've had from a standpoint of you can match him up on a premier guy whether he's in the slot or outside and those are the kind of things we can do with him that's real important 
Uh, and Wilson kind of responded later on saying, I'm glad uh, he thinks that. I try really hard to be good at what I do, and I try harder just to be there for my team wherever they need me. Corner, star, wherever, safety, I need to, wherever I need to be, I'll be there. Don't matter. So good mindset there uh, from Marco Wilson in the year that he came back. He could have went to the NFL, wouldn't have been too high of a you know draft pick there, but bouncing back from injury last year, sliding into to star, and when, when Trey Dean couldn't really get the job done there, uh, that allowed Kyrie Elam to you know play some more outside corner and, and show his worth there as well. I mean, he is versatile, Will, and, and, and we saw it last, last year. Like I said, I didn't necessarily think we would see too much coming up in, in 2020 of, of Marco Wilson playing star, but it sounds like that's still going to be in the plans. Yeah, well, I mean, they've brought in an awful lot of corners, right? I mean, yeah. you, you've got you got Pouncey, you've got Kyrie Elam who can conceivably play. Um, they had some, other, you know, Chester Kimbrough and and, and Jadon Hill. That, so they've got guys who've got some experience that they can put out there wide, especially if, you know, if you've got Elam as the lockdown guy on the number one guy and you want to let Wilson sort of roam in the slot, especially if the offense is targeting people um, who, are, who are setting up in the slot. I, th- I think it makes some sense to slide him inside. The other thing, and I, you alluded to it, but I think it's important to recognize is that, you know, Wilson was coming off a pretty serious knee injury, and I know he was uh, you know, he was going through a bunch of um, sort of warm-ups and things like that in the bowl game the year before, but at the same time, you know, that's a – really almost a two-year injury when you think about getting back to where you were originally. And I think we saw that a little bit in the in the Miami game, especially last year. There were some plays that he made that, that showed a little bit of rust, and it got better throughout the year. But I think when you took when you look at the totality of his season, you go, okay, he's going to get drafted, but he's not going to necessarily be that high. So the reason you come back if you're Marco Wilson is to show everybody that a full year on tape, um, you know, showing them your ability, but also showing them your versatility. And, and he's going to have the ability to do that with a fully healthy knee. And, and certainly if they're already raving about him in camp, you suspect that, uh, you know, that, that he's fully healthy and, and going to be able to start, start and make a difference from day one in multiple pla- multiple places on defense. Yeah, one more note here, Will. Uh, really, really, and, it just, and, and mostly because he was asked, but Todd Grantham really, really high on, on Brenton Cox here. Quote, I'm really, really excited to watch him play. I've been very pleased with his work ethic. He's really worked hard to develop some of the fundamentals that he needed to be the kind of player that he wants to be. And I think the biggest thing that I see with him is his desire to be a good player. The guy's work ethic, his demeanor, really glad he's on our team. And Look, uh, of course, there's going to be sour grapes and a lot of the, a lot of the um, word from Athens when he transferred to, to Florida was uh, locker room trouble. He really didn't care. He wasn't going to be in the best shape. And look, I mean, uh, we've heard you know rumors and everything, you know talking to people behind the scenes that he's dominated fall camp. He's been a he's been a force out there. He's got the number one jersey uh, that you know. And Grantham even said there's a something about earning that, uh, doing all the right things. And it seems like you know Brenton Cox is a is a monster waiting to happen. Grantham's next great pass rusher uh, in, in the last couple you know years of of great Florida pass rushers has been under Todd Grantham. I mean, I, I don't want to take too much from sound bites, Will, in, in, in interviews, but it really sounds like you know Britton Cotts could be uh, just a, a dominant force on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, two years ago we had Ja'Kai Polite and Jabari Zaniga. Last year we had Zaniga, and the question was Grenard coming into the season. Obviously, Grenard had a very, a, a very positive year, 
And now you've got a guy with much more talent than Granada Zuniga when you look at sort of the raw talent. And so if he's putting that together with the work ethic and the fundamentals and all that sort of stuff, then obviously he's going to be a force to be reckoned with. And, you know, I think there's an adjustment period, even even for somebody who's not a football player, just the adjustment period when you go from high school to college. And sometimes that adjustment isn't as smooth as you'd like. And and so being able to come to Florida, having a clean slate with the staff and, and sort of being able to establish, you know, who you want to be within the program as opposed to when you come in at 18 and maybe expect to – be able to walk out there and play without putting in the work. I mean, it's entirely possible that what we heard at Athens is true, but that Brenton Cox learned from the experience mm-hmm. and has become a better man because of it. And, you know, you just applaud him for that. I, I think the big thing is, is, is what Clark alluded to earlier, is that Florida's struggles with, with Georgia specifically have started with the inability to get pressure with the front four. Yep. And Cox is a guy who has the talent profile to be able to get around a left tackle who's of high quality that George is going to put out there, especially since George is losing, losing both of its starting tackles. And, 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 so, and maybe a revenge profile now. <laughs> well, that, well, that too. But I mean, you know, the reality is, is that Jamie Newman or JT Daniels or whoever ends up being the quarterback there at Georgia is going to have to feel Cox in that game if Florida's going to win. I mean, th- that is the reality is they are going to have to get pressure with their front four. They haven't been able to do that the last two years and Jake Fromm has picked them apart. Obviously, Fromm isn't there anymore, but any quarterback who doesn't get affected by the pass rush is going to be able to sit behind you and, and pick you apart. And the reality is, is that when Florida sent the blitz last year, Fromm burned him on the blitz too, especially, yeah. you know, the dagger to Cager at the end. So Cox is a big part of that. Tadaryl Slayton is a big part of that. Gravon Dexter is a big part of that. Like the guys up front are going to have to win battles against a Georgia offensive line that is going to come in relatively um, – you know, going to come in relatively inexperienced. And so that has to be an advantage for Florida. Florida's going to have to take advantage, and Cox is a big part of that. Hi, right, man. Will, uh, what you got coming up? Read and Reaction. I know also uh, uh, more, uh, the full video on uh, the Read and Reaction YouTube channel for uh, breaking down uh, Kyle Trask and what he was able to do versus LSU last year. Yeah, so I've been doing some video work. Just I, I think it's sometimes it's easier to describe what's going on on video than it is to put it in words underneath a, a GIF or something like that. So I'm going to be posting stuff there throughout the season. I'm going to be sending out some stuff for my Patreon followers that are that are you know just for them. Thank them for thank them for supporting me, and then uh, you know. I mentioned it a little bit last week. I'm just getting around to writing it, but the delay of the NCAA giving everybody essentially a free year uh-huh. and what that means from a recruiting standpoint for, for Mullen and for Georgia and, and closing that gap conceivably is, is something that's going to be up there. And then um, Nick Newsom will have another piece up this week on uh, the Charlie Pell era. He's, he's got a bunch of different pieces that are going to be going up, uh, heading into the season, sort of wrapping that up. And then uh, he and I will be writing all throughout the year. Sounds good. Sounds good. Not too much longer for actual football talk or actual game talk. So we're all just waiting, just waiting for that. So uh, uh, probably going to do uh, interview heavy for the next few uh, Gators Breakdown episodes as well. So uh, we'll just be on the lookout for uh, that there. So for Will Miles, you can find him on Twitter at Will Miles SEC and his site readandreaction.com. I'm the host of Gators Breakdown, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. Guys and girls out there, thanks for listening to this episode of Gators Breakdown.